Hi, and welcome to the Perpetual Stew with Matt and Sarah. I'm Matthew Goodman. I'm Sarah Merle. And uh, so, Sarah, what are you eating today, and what's eating you? Well, first of all, I just shoveled. Uh, I just shoveled some of my gentleman friends' uh, Italian leftovers into my face, uh, and then and then on top of that, a nice, uh, nice salty ham and Swiss uh, lunchable, my favorite kind of lunchable. Um, and other than that, I haven't eaten anything today because I've been uh, doing a production run with my new production assistant slash. I mean, let's be honest, she's going to become the production manager, but Grace uh, and. Uh, yeah, so I'm just like sitting in my chair at a nice 30 degree angle. Uh, and what's eating me is what we're going to be talking about today because um, I'm having an interesting experience with a nonprofit. And I know that you've had some experiences with nonprofit, and mine is causing me a, an immediate pain, and yours is causing you, uh, you know, a lasting pain. So, <laughs> what about you? What are you eating and what's eating you? So, um, because for my current nonprofit, which is not eating me, mm-hmm. uh, but in, in fact, the legal accountability project is a ton of fun. Uh, I just shoveled a, uh, uh, chicken pot pie in my face, uh, <laughs> before in between recordings. Cause we just finished recording some explainer videos about, about the courts and clerkships and stuff like that. But yeah, chicken pot pie is definitely one of my comfort foods. Mm. Uh, I mean, shepherd's pie, honestly, I just love pies. Uh, savory, sweet, just give me freaking pie all day, every day. Um, if you ever come to Indianapolis, I will take you to Pots and Pans, um, which is a plant shop and pie shop. It is amazing. <laughs> um, they do, of course, like the normal like sweet pies, but they also have this huge line of take-and-bake savory pot pies. And my favorite one ever is um, the it's a Thai chicken curry. So it's just like Red curry, like extra thick in a pot pie. Fucking awesome. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And uh, that's definitely something you could also take while baked. Um, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it solves many problems at once. Uh, and what's eating me is the insane weather out here in, <laughs> uh, in Nevada that it's been every single season, I think, in the last two weeks. <laughs> Um, and today it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's 70 and sunny. Benny went for a huge walk, which he loved. And now he's taking his nap, Uh, but it's (laughs) going to be like a hundred this weekend. So, uh, he's going to be real mad about that. Uh, luckily I I think tomorrow's my birthday that the weather's going to be pretty (laughs) good. Happy birthday. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, linear time is, is a bitch. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I know. Um, and I am going to just become even more ancient and decrepit. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, 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 I've been thinking a lot about, uh, about I, I'm now in like sort of the exit ramp off my 30s. I'm not quite there yet, but uh, in, in a couple of years I will be and what that and what that means. If it has any existential implications or not, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't think, I think that, uh, you know, not to immediately jump on my foldable traveling feminist soapbox, but I think that like part of us all being sort of brainwashed by ageism and youth culture is like, you're like, ah, 40s old. And it's like, no, 40s pretty young. Like 40s, like not even totally middle age if you're lucky, but you know. Just, you know, make good choices. You know, wear your sunscreen, eat your veg. Yeah, I, 
I just realized that, you know, all the things that um, I noticed about other people when they when they got this age is not necessarily true about me. Yeah, uh, I don't know why that is. It just seems to be um, that I was always in some ways overly serious, even as a child and, and yep. in some ways uh, too silly, even as an adult. So I feel like it's a reasonable balance. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I always say that I like one of the greatest gifts that life ever gave me was not letting me be attractive until I was in my twenties. Uh, because growing up when you're like fat or a little bit ugly or like whatever, just like not a 10, right? Like when you're just like not a 10, you get this whole personality, right? Like you get like a whole personality and you learn how to like be a person. And then, uh, then you like get to live into your forties and just become a more interesting person. And, um, I say that because, you know, uh, we've all met a handful of people who just can't imagine themselves as anything but, you know, young, hot sex objects. And then they're like, shit, 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 shit. I have wrinkles. And it's like, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know who who told you that that was not going to happen. But yeah. (laughs) My hope is that I am one of those people who continues to become more interesting as I get older, because those oh. are the people I continue to like and admire throughout my entire life. It's not a question for you, Matt. Like, that's not <laughs> like by the time that you get to be an old man, you're going to be one of those old men that just like people like everyone of all ages love seeing you walk in the door because you're going to have a great story to tell. Oh, and that's so nice. I know that's going to be you, Matt. I'm, I'm absolutely positive. That is so kind. Although I won't be walking into doors. People are going to have to climb up a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> to get my my uh, ridiculous advice, um, <laughs> I'll just I'll get some like in I'll find the person who writes uh, the fortune cookies and give them a whole bunch of fucking like get them on a bunch of mushrooms and see what comes out. Man, have you gotten a fortune cookie lately that has an ad on the back? <laughs> yeah, and it makes me so sad. <laughs> really, like it really bummed me out the first time I got one, especially because like I drove all the way down to Bloomington and went to this great. Um, Chinese restaurant there called Long Fei and uh, brought it to the house of the guy that I was dating who lived in like this cabin on like some land and like, <laughs> you know, whatever. And we're sitting there like having nice, like fancy Chinese on his porch and like right at the end, you just flip it over and it's like, just kidding. This has all been the Truman show. We're all just trying to get you to get a capital one card, this whole meal. Fuck you. Well, I just hope that my last fortune uh, comes true because it said, uh, and I quote, you will soon receive a windfall. Hell yeah. So I, I am still waiting. Uh, and if anybody out there wants to provide me with a windfall <laughs> to fulfill this, uh, I, I can, you know, uh, shoot me, <laughs> shoot me an email, hit me on Facebook or on Twitter at Perp Stew, uh, slide into my DMs and then, you know, we'll figure something out. Um, <laughs> so let's use that as a terrible transition Love um, it. to uh, today's topic. Dun, da, 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 which is nonprofit culture. Ugh, like, okay, listen, I have this theory and it is that while cultures in like publicly traded or, you know, for-profit companies get pretty bad, like in for-profit companies, there's kind of a natural boundary about like people just won't work there anymore after a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like there's just not enough money in the world that'll make you put up with whatever, right? Like that's a that's a not emotional economic decision. But in the nonprofit world, baby, oh, 
Oh, they'll take your whole soul for a ride. They will run it through one of those, like, uh, you know, those little tourist penny presses that just shoots out like this mangled but flattened with like an impression of whatever shitty site that you've gone to see on of it. Of a it's lighthouse. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> the nonprofit world, that boundary is so much farther away than it is in the for-profit world because you're making a, a financial decision. But the nonprofit world is a highly emotional place. And in the spirit of that, you know, aren't you dedicated to the cause, you know, um, no true Scotsman uh, kind of vibes, there ends up being like a way, way, way more dysfunctional uh, and and often abusive environment. And I just wanted to talk to you about that since you have much more experience with it than I do. It's something that, you know, uh, Aliza and I think about a lot where, you know, we just founded a nonprofit. We're yep. going to be hiring people in the next year or so. And we think about that like a lot, a lot, a lot, because so much of our work deals with harassment in the workplace, discrimination. So we want to be the kind of bosses that everyone, you know, that we wish that we had had. Yep. But it's, uh, you are 100% right that in the nonprofit space, there's, you know, when I was, because uh, before I, I founded Legal Accountability Project, I was working at a legal nonprofit. Yes. And there's this sense of, even when, you know, things are going badly, even when there's terrible management, like there's a feeling like you're, you all believe in the cause, you're all family. Yep. And that if you walk away, you're like abandoning the cause. You didn't care about that. You didn't care about them. Yeah. You, you never really cared about it yeah. becomes the, the line. And it's like the exit from the nonprofit world is just rife with this kind of horrible brutality that like, uh, doesn't, it just doesn't, I mean, not saying that brutality doesn't exist in the for-profit world, but like, you know, your boss in a for-profit world just wants to fill your seat after you're gone. You know, like your boss in a nonprofit world, you know, could be someone who all their lives have made $50,000 and been working 80-hour weeks, or they're making $350,000 and they work 25 hours and your entire organization runs on intern labor. It's just, yeah, it's so variable that... There is like more market pressure yep. <laughs> to be to have like lean or at least vaguely efficient corporate structures. This is not always true. Obviously, there's some right. there's some markets where that that's not true. Um, but in the nonprofit space, you're not really expected. You're not really expected to, to to leave because you don't you know because you don't feel personally valued as an employee. Or, you know, the boss is not is not expected to, you know, like, just be a really good manager. Like, you're all sort of activists in <laughs> yeah. addition to, like, it being a day job. So, like, it's not just, like, leaving a job. It's also, like, abandoning this activist thing and, and like, speaking out against the boss who might have been a truly excellent advocate in yep. this space, but they're just a terrible boss. I was just I was just going to say it's one of the few places where – being a terrible boss is often even a sign of how much you care about the thing. Like being a horrible, yeah. abusive, yelling, screaming person, you know, a lot of times, I mean, if you're a man, but like gets written off as like, you know, he's just really passionate. He's just really passionate about this. <laughs> it's, it's hard because, you know, as an advocate and as an activist, you kind of got to be an asshole to some extent. Of course. Yeah. Because you, you wouldn't be out there telling everyone what they're doing wrong if you weren't comfortable, <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, pissing in the punch bowl or overturning the apple cart. <laughs> yes. Right? Because that's how change happens. But at the same time, if you, like, bring that same sort of um, 
how to put it like willing like uh conflict invitation (laughs) (laughs) into like being a boss and managing people yeah it can it can lead to really i think that you you put it really well like the skill sets are entirely different for being a boss and being an advocate and too often i think it's it's the peter principle in the nonprofit world we promote people who are good at the fur good at being the advocate but lack the sort of managerial skills to be um to be a leader oh my god there were there's a a local nonprofit here that um does great work it's it's um i'm not going to name them because this is a this is a shit talking podcast we're having fun in this episode (laughs) uh but they do a lot of sti testing and i had a friend that worked there right after college and then by the way we should we should come up with at the end of this we should come up with a list of like signs you might be about to go work for a really toxic nonprofit. <laughs> and I think the first one for me would be, is everyone there under 30? Do you, do you overwhelmingly meet people under 30 and, and even worse if it's under 25? And if like, if of the 10 people you spoke to when you walked in the building, right, the receptionist and the security person or whatever, like if more than 50% of those people are interns, run, you got to run, just run for it. Because that place has zero dollars. Everyone, you know, what's so funny is you were talking about like the market pressure to like maximize profits with your budget in the in the for-profit world. In the nonprofit world, nobody ever has enough money. And like that's just yeah. like the starting assumption is like you will not have what you need to accomplish what we ask of you. Good luck. <laughs> that, that, that is the baseline. Yeah. What I think about this constantly. Um <laughs> I mean, I think about, you know, with my own work constantly, like how are the are we going to do, get the money to do all the things that we want to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, and the answer is we won't. So we're going to have to prioritize, <laughs> but that that's all right. And like, yeah, I think I want to add a little twist to your sort of your theory here. There's another one where if like you, ha- if the only people who have been there a long time are like, only people who have been there for like more than three years are like, toward the end of their career and yes. everyone else underneath <laughs> them just churns every few years. Like, yes. yeah, don't, don't go to that place either. Cause it means that like the, the wall fixtures, the people who have been there forever, like they are not like, you're never going to move up. You're never going to be able to advance yep. uh, unless it's like through a funeral. And I don't think that anybody really, <laughs> you know, wants to think about their career advancement based on like the actuarial, um, probabilities for their co-workers <laughs> the actuarial probabilities of their co-workers is amazing yeah <laughs> uh, my first ever like real writing job was at nouveau news weekly which i will name because uh no one cares and they are an online publication now but at the time um, they, it was a free printed paper. And in the time that I worked there, we went from, you know, like the sort of oversized, like the magazine size page down to like a normal, I think it was like 10 by 10. Um, and then after I left, it became no paper and all online. But on one of my first days, uh, my coworker, Asha, who is still a lovely human being said, you know, you really need to treat this place like a nonprofit, which I'd never had a job in like a corporate environment. So I didn't know what that fucking meant. Uh, but what I learned that it meant is you'll always have more work to do than you'll have time in the day. Uh, something's always going to fall through the cracks. So you have to like decide every morning what thing you're going to just like fuck off. And then um, the boss is going to have wildly unrealistic expectations for everybody at the bottom. 
Yeah, because that's like basically the only way it gets done is that you have to be <laughs> understaffed, which means you constantly just have to squeeze and squeeze and squeeze and squeeze mm-hmm. and squeeze. And you can't, and, and it's not as if you're like building equity in the company or, you right, know, right, or, something, right. or something like that. Like, okay, I'll get my stock options in five years. But no, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no ownership in the nonprofit. So like, that's right. what you're building up is like karma, I guess. It's like karma and connections. And I think the really dangerous part about that especially is like because exits from the nonprofit world tend to be pretty sour um, is that like now you've burned up a huge amount of your life force fighting this like, you know, David and Goliath battle because you thought that you would meet a lot of other Davids and maybe you could team up and you could all take down one Goliath. But now all the other Davids fucking hate you and you hate them back. Uh, So you're you know, exactly where you were the day you got hired, uh, minus a bunch of life force. <laughs> I just remember when, uh, one of my friends was applying to jobs as an immigration attorney. Uh, mm-hmm. she, you know, she got offered, uh, a job under $35,000 a year Christ. to be an immigration attorney. Jesus and it's like, Christ. From a nonprofit. And it's like, that like we realized that after paying rent and paying her student loan, she'd had negative $700 a month. I like that. Like that's the kind of shit that makes me want to throw my laptop against the wall. Like it's like, and, and, you know, in, I don't know if she even went through the interview process, but like the worst <laughs> no. part about being lowballed in the nonprofit world is like, everybody kind of smiles sheepishly about it. Like they fucking know they're like, this isn't like enough money, but <laughs> like we really, we really like each other and we have pizza on Fridays. We have beer sometimes yeah. like great. Great, thank you. It, she did. She did not take the job because she literally could not uh, take yeah. the job. And, and, and I have to admit, in the legal in the legal space, it's not a lack of overall resources in the law. It's simply a misallocation of those resources. So, like corporate go. attorneys and stuff get overpaid, yeah. while people who work in public interest get vastly underpaid. That if you actually balanced it out on their contribution to society, you would wind up with a very, very different um, pay structure, Uh, which is why like at where I went to law school, like 75% of the students who came in wanting to do public interest couldn't Mm -hmm. simply because it was not economically viable for them because of their student loans and other factors. I was, I was just going to say like, (coughs) excuse me, sorry. This is the whole reason that we, we, these systems are so negative is because the only people that can fill those positions are products of generational wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the only reason that I could take a summer, if an unpaid summer internship uh, during my senior year of college is because my parents are paying my fucking rent for me, you know, like, yeah. so you end up with a bunch of people who have like, <laughs> kind of like this theoretical passion about what they're like, trying to get involved with. And like the person who actually may have struggled with whatever food access or, you know, uh, housing justice or whatever as a child. And that's why they're really passionate about it. Like they just have to go take a different job that has no access to that. And then hopefully maybe they can get back to it uh, later after they pay off their student loans at 40 or whatever. And and then you also have the people from the product of that generational wealth. It's like you might stay working in that space for a few years, but eventually you're going to need to cash out. Right. Right. And that often means switching sides. Oh, oh! After you've been studying the other side's tactics for years, because that's uh, that, that is quite common in certain spaces. I had a 
uh, a friend who worked in uh, housing law for a housing nonprofit um, for years and years and years, and then you know impressed the firm representing landlords uh, so much that they hired her. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. There are there is like there is going to the dark side, and then there is we're going from housing justice to being the lawyer for landlords. Truly, yeah. like holy but- shit. And like this is this is not knocking my friend. Like she made the decision that was right for her family, and she did not come from generational wealth. So this was like you know Willy Wonka golden ticket. I'm gonna make six times more money and yes. have an assistant and a nice office. I, like, I'm not. By the way, I want to just say I'm also not judging this person. I am judging the system that incentivizes yeah, this change. No, that is, that is exactly it. You can't view these as personal like you know as personal problems. These are right. just problems with the system that like. If you can instantly get a raise, literally overnight, not just like twice what you're making, but like yep. six times what you were making before, there are very, very few people who are in a position to say no, unless you have that sort of wealth already. Oh. So like, I, I still give her shit about it from time to time because, you know, <laughs> that's what friends are for. But like, I'm totally happy for her, her family, her, her, her husband, who's great and, and their, and their, and their new, and their growing family. Absolutely wonderful. It's just a sign of how fucked up everything is, is that like you can't make that like that one side can't pay you enough to like live and the other side can give them give you an offer that you can't refuse. I mean, well, I wouldn't do any different than that, right? Like I wouldn't do any different than that. You have this whole knowledge base. You have, you know, all this training and what else are you going to do? Like. Well, cool. I, I did because <laughs> I'm silly, but also I come from a, a family background where I can make that decision. Right. I, and I want to make that very, very clear that this is an aspect of the privilege that we're talking about. And like maybe, you know, uh, and same like Aliza and I are not trying to hide the fact that we come from relatively affluent backgrounds yeah. because otherwise we couldn't afford to do the work that we're doing. And yes. Like that seems intrinsically unhealthy and then be able to stick it out that long and actually become, you know, the president or the boss of um, one of a nonprofit, you're not going to be part of the quote unquote rank and file. You're going to be come from the sort of like meritocratic aristocracy. Yep. And, you know, uh, I was talking to, I was yelling into the wind in a, in a friend's general direction about how my big frustration with a lot of local nonprofits here in Indianapolis, and this is also an extension of like Midwest nice culture, but when you're the leader of a nonprofit and the nonprofit has like a pretty good reputation, you get this kind of like halo, right? This sort of mm-hmm. like uh, leadership halo where it's like, oh, well, isn't it great that this person who's so smart and so capable and could have could have made so much money in the corporate world came to work for us. And it's like, well then, you know, then that kind of, it kind of shields that person from legitimate criticism. You know what I mean? Mm. And, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like because the nonprofit world, I just feel like the nonprofit world gets this kind of automatic extra layer of shield protection where this idea that like not automatically not seeking out profit makes you morally, uh, morally superior to somebody who might be pursuing this exact same thing, but from a for-profit perspective, you know? Mm -hmm. 
there are some things that you can't really make profit off of. Like, you know, like providing legal services to indigent clients, you cannot make profit off of because literally the clients don't have money. So like, I actually give a ton of extra respect for people who work in spaces that are essentially non-monetizable because of the communities they serve. But for other types of advocacy or other types of nonprofit work, and I'm going to take a particular shot at like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which a couple years ago, you know, it came out that they were like paying their their founders and like top uh, officials, uh, you know, million dollars a year salaries in addition to all these perks and fostering and like an incredibly sexist and abusive um, workplace environment. Hopefully things have gotten better there, but like they get this halo effect because, you know, oh, look at what they're doing. But like at the end of the day, it had sort of turned into a racket. Yep. And, and I think it's always, there's always that, there's always this risk, particularly when you are getting, um, constantly having people compliment you, yep. constantly people saying, oh, you're doing such amazing work, to feel like that, like, of believing that you, that, like, the goodness of the work transfers automatically to your goodness. I think that's really, really dangerous. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, especially because, you know, it starts making you personally feel like you're sort of immune to criticism. Like, mm-hmm. you know, back to my boss at Nuvo, and, you know, my everybody knows who this person is in Indianapolis, in, in Indianapolis, but he's the heir to a banking fortune. And when the staff started saying, you know, paying us $30,000 is not enough money. It's not enough money. Like... You can cut that. You can take that any way you what you want to take it. But with inflation and the rising cost of living, it's not mm-hmm. enough money. And our boss was so offended by this. He was so deeply offended because he was giving us an opportunity. <laughs> and his his actual swear to God response was, sounds like you need to uh, budget a little bit better. <laughs> Have you tried not having Starbucks? Yeah. I mean, literally like gave us the you know, give up your lattes routine. Um, and, uh, you know, was so deeply offended. Like that was part of what got me set up to get fired. There was, I also got on the train of like, Hey, hi, just want to pop in here and just say as the newest member of the editorial team, this is not enough money. Um, and, uh, you know, those people start to believe in their own mythos that they're like giving people this opportunity that if it weren't for them and their graciousness and their benevolence, that no one would have ever thought to tackle this terrible problem. And aren't we so lucky to have them? I am hoping that the tighter job market helps with that. I know that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I hope so. Because I know that, you know, in, in some institutions, some nonprofits that I've seen, they have had to start raising the salaries that they offer. Yeah. Um, that actually I ended up turning down a job and taking another job to nonprofit organizations because the first one just – couldn't offer anything close to market value, like not like nowhere even close. Um, And this is the thing that like you're allowed to, as a nonprofit, pay people what they're worth in the open market. In fact, you are encouraged to. (laughs) And this is something, you know, that, that we plan on doing, you know, resources permitting that we're going to just do less if we can't afford to, to do it in a way that is fair to the people who work because who work for us. Yep. Because we want, I mean, this is a big thing that we, you know, uh, 
that my work is really focused on, you know, DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And like class is a big, big part of that. Yep. So you end up with, you know, like rich people working, you know, a rich person from generational wealth working for 250 or $300,000 a year who, you know, becomes insulated from that privilege of the fight on the ground. Yeah. And this is why I've seen some criticism of like BLM, um, Mm -hmm. you know, their work, they're saying that, oh, they're getting, their leaders are getting paid too much, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, they didn't budget great. They didn't, you know, spend the money as perfectly as they could have, but like them paying themselves, you know, for running a very large and successful organization, you know, a hundred thousand dollars a year should not raise anybody's eyebrows. Like also like a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> is not an exorbitant amount of money, you know? No, especially for running a large organization, like not yeah. at all that this is something that we should be in. I mean, like, I mean, it's one thing if you're talking like, okay, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos don't deserve to be paid billions and billions of dollars a year. Like, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who built these organizations from the ground up and are asking to be paid like even less than what they're probably worth on the open market. Um, Like the criticism, it it always makes it sound like because you care and because you want to work in the public good, that somehow you need to like take a vow of poverty is (laughs) to me insane. No. And I, I want to be clear. Like I'm not, advocating for some sort of nonprofit vow of poverty. However, like you do, you do see a variety of styles of nonprofit executive, right? And like the people that I find most convincing are the people not driving luxury cars. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Like again, like if you are paying your staff 30 grand a year below market and you're making like 400 grand, uh, which is way above uh, market for uh, the like running uh, a nonprofit. Like I have studied this, as you can imagine, a lot. Yep. Looking at the public filings of other um, non legal nonprofits, what they they get paid. Like, you know, I'm going to be moving to DC soon, and oh, you know, yay. yeah, and they're going to be like, you know, people who run nonprofits in DC make an okay living. They make like eighty to ninety thousand dollars a year. Yeah. I'm like in DC, that's perfectly middle class wage but perfectly these people, middle class yeah but it's it's that it's perfectly middle class yeah yeah <laughs> like it's it's survivable you will retire probably like eventually but you're not going to live luxuriously you're not going to be like you know driving a bentley and taking any vacations to like the south of france for a month in september you know no like the only way to ever like get paid significant money is to like write a successful book or to yep. like to do a whole bunch of private speaking gigs or stuff like that. Like, yeah. But <laughs> if anybody who goes into the nonprofit space, like anybody who says, Oh, you're just doing it for the money. Like if I were just doing it for the money, like I'd be out there representing Harvey Weinstein right now. Oh, I was just going to say, it's like when people say like, Oh, you know, doctors just get in it for the money. And I would be like, dog, there are way easier ways to make a few hundred thousand dollars a year, like way easier with a lot less testing and like brutal overnight shifts. I promise. Just work you. in finance. Like just go run a hedge fund. Seriously. I mean, like, my sister did not, my sister could have been a hedge fund manager if she wanted to. She didn't become a radiologist because she was like, yeah, I'm just trying to get them bucks, actually. Like, mm. 
put it this way if you so like where my brother works my brother works in finance like you know two of the people he works with are former nasa physicists oh my god <laughs> like they just you know at a certain point they're just like yeah I'm sick of getting paid less than I'm worth. And it's not like they get paid a little more now. They get paid like 10 times what they were being paid before. Yeah. Like, oh, and, and like, as I said, the math is easier. The hours are shorter and the pay is 10 times more. Like, <laughs> and the stakes and the stakes, are, <laughs> the stakes are so much lower. Yeah. Oh, so much lower. Uh, and, and no one's like, like, yeah, you're not going to accidentally, you know, waste $60 million slamming right, something right. into Mars because of a calculation error. Like you can, can you, actually fix your mistakes. Can, <laughs> I love those documentaries about the Hubble telescope, but you know, this was like NASA's greatest project for a long time, blah, 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 blah. They get it up in space, but forget to like calculate for the uh, effect of, you know, not uh, whatever it is zero gravity on the bend of the lens so they end up like with really blurry photos and then they have to like machine basically a contact lens to stick to the <laughs> hubble telescope you know what i mean like yeah, that's I great that. i love that shit there was my one of my favorite things was a library at a famous university where they forgot to calculate in the weight of the books yes i i know that this so has probably sinking. happened one time like in a real place but like this is like my favorite uh, urban legend that every university has about their library. I love it. No, this is an actual one. You can actually see it when you get there because you see <laughs> the keystones. They're like halfway buried to this point. Damn. There's actually a mall near where I grew up. It was the only IMAX theater near where I grew up where they forgot to calculate the weight of the people. Wow. Um, so it's sinking. So now what was supposed to be ground level is now the basement level. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Yeah, because they had to like create an entirely new foundation that much lower. So they had to just like, you know, ease the entire thing down 20 feet because, of I, you know, they, they effed up real bad. Okay, I, f I fell into a rabbit hole on YouTube of engineers fixing complicated building disasters. And one of them uh, was a tower, I believe in, ooh, it might just be a New York City tower. But like they have to, they had to slowly jack up a 300 story skyscraper like half an inch at a time over like months and months and months fascinating shit again if you want to just make money go make money like you can go go get into engineering for high buildings and figure out how to uh jack up buildings or something like that you know <laughs> i just imagine him jacking up the building and then just like cash pouring out from the windows <laughs> <laughs> that di that did seem to be about the process for that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, truly, can like, you can go into military contracting. I was just gonna say, like, uh, anywhere that you can get a government contract is usually like pretty sweet. So uh, you can be an electrician, you can get into road paving and asphalt. My friend Laura Dozier's family uh, just rolls around in some uh, Scrooge McDuck money uh, because their dad uh, got into. Um, road paving and then got one small contract with the state of Kentucky and then got a bunch of contracts mm -hmm. with the state of Kentucky. And now they have horses. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it works. I that's how I that works. I, this, I want to note that this sort of phenomenon we're talking about in nonprofit space, and it happens in the for-profit space that I work for a, uh, uh, <laughs> an infomercial company. Don't judge me. <laughs> um, for a few months and everyone there was making like I lost about $13 a day working there. Oh um, this was during, during the very beginning of the great recession. So I was just, oh. you know, 
doing my best before uh, I had to before I I got to go to Israel on a grant, but. Like everyone there who was like rank and file was in almost the same situation, except for the owner and his daughter, um, who were, you know, rolling up in. Let's just say that they made a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And like it, but because it wasn't a nonprofit and because I didn't feel like I had some obligation, it's like the moment I got an opportunity to leave, I was just like, peace, bitches. Yeah. That's just a shitty job, right? Like, that's a shitty underpaying job like that you left because you could. And no one questioned why you left. They said, yeah, yeah get that money, boss. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Even my other coworkers were like, you know, oh, good, good for you. Have a good time. <laughs> you know, like if you if they have openings, let me know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, I think, yeah, I think that's like the key thing that you pointed out before is the sort of weaponization of your passion and care about the world. Yep. And like, that's like a double injury. It's it, right. Like that's like, you know, it sucks to lose your job. You already have like, you know, economic lose your job or, you know, it's scary to switch jobs or whatever. Like, you know, you, everybody tries to leave most places on good terms and it's like, ah, it's just so injurious. Like it hurts. I mean, I know that's so like, but does it hurts? It hurts your feelings. And I guess that, yeah, I think that's a good point. Feelings, like everyone says like, emotion that in, in like a pure capitalist society, you know, <laughs> theoretically that's not supposed to matter. Like people would just take whatever pays them the most, like the, the best combination of like uh, wages and health insurance and like, you know, lets them live in the school district that they want to like blah, 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 blah. But people make decisions based on emotion. Of course. You know, they're like, my friend who works in immigration law doesn't work in immigration law because it's like, you know, the most luxurious lifestyle or, you know, (laughs) that it makes her the happiest or whatever. It's because she freaking cares about it. And she's always overworked and she's always underpaid. And she has to deal with cases that deal with like some of the saddest, most desperate stories you have, you can ever hear. And then, and it, and it's, and it's rough. Like it is emotionally just devastating to work in. But you do it because you really, really care. And I think that it's incumbent upon the people leading these organizations to, to like, you know, I don't know, like recognize that and like give it the respect and honor and pay that it deserves. Yep. Yeah, there is, you know, there is a middle ground, like you said. And, and if I could change anything, right, like I would want more pay and just less of that just like horrible, toxic, infectious, you know, don't you care? Don't you really care about this kind of thing? And then I think that a lot of people would be much more willing to go into the nonprofit world, you know? Because, you know, you could take a sick day or you, <laughs> and yeah. not have it be seen as some sort of betrayal. Or, you know, know that your, your single sick day means that, you know, the actual two people's jobs that you're doing as a single person, neither one of them will get done. You know, they just won't get done. And which should tell you that if you can't afford to have people take sick days, it means you're understaffed. Yep. Um, but <laughs> also, this is a little aside that like I also see how some nonprofits who claim to be consistently understaffed, you know, the sort of perks and nice things they give to upper management. I'm just mm-hmm. like, like you can do without that, and we can get another. <laughs> we can have another accountant, or we can have another office assistant. Like. <laughs> Just, you know, we don't have to go to the super expensive restaurant 
um, on the company's dime. We could go to this the merely expensive restaurant. Oh, that's that shit kills me. That shit kills me when you go like when you're when you're you know the only organization that I've ever like donated money to not the only one, but like one of the few local organizations that I'm just in love with is the Indianapolis cultural trail. Um, because their annual gala quote unquote is that you go clean up the trail. Like Hmm. uh, instead of, you know, I love it. Yeah. Right. Like that refreshes me to my core that it's like, well, this is a nonprofit. And if you really give a shit about this, pick up a bucket and a grabber and help us pick up trash. It's like, yeah, that's (laughs) more of this. And they have a tiny office on the trail. Like, you know, they're just, it's also run by a bunch of like lovely crunchy hippies. So they don't care about, you know, being a fancy executive. They care about having a nice trail that they can bike on. I guess what I'm saying is like more hippies for nonprofit because uh, they're really chill and they don't kind of, they already don't really give a shit what other people think of them. So uh, they're not as invested in the whole like um, self aggrandizement, you know? That's also a big thing to look at are the nonprofits that are actually making things or doing things in real life that make life better. This is one of my criticisms of certain types of nonprofits. They spend a lot of time on Twitter. Yep. Um, and not a lot of time, you know, in the world doing things. <laughs> yeah. So I want to give a particular shout out to one of my favorite nonprofits in the world. It's called It's Your Birthday. Oh. And, and what it does is that it throws birthday parties uh, for children whose parents don't have the money to throw them birthday parties. Oh. Um, and as you can imagine how impactful this is for the relationship between parents and their kids and how, yeah. what a huge difference even small things like that can make in their lives because one of the persistent, persistent falsehoods told about parents, particularly poor parents is that they just don't care about their kids. And it makes me unbelievably angry to hear that having, you know, I, you know, working in these communities, knowing parents who are desperately fighting, working three jobs every day to, to care for their, their kids that they love more than the world. And they just might not have enough money, you know, uh, to throw their kid a birthday party and they feel horrible about it. Yeah. Right. And it's your birthday. Ton of bang for your buck. Cause you can throw a great kid's birthday party <laughs> for not a lot of money. And yeah. the sheer joy, not just of the kids, but for the parents and like alleviating the guilt and letting them just have these memories that really do um, impact people's lives in meaningful ways. Like that's the sort of like thankless on the ground work that is nonetheless just like immensely, immensely impactful in people's lives. Yeah. It's called, it's your birthday. Um, They don't work everywhere in the U S but if, if you, you think that your community needs something like that, where you live, like start your own. It's not hard. It's not expensive. And I can guarantee you that like that kind of work is like the most uplifting kind of work you can possibly do. Can you imagine? I was just thinking that like, you know, you can get into so many um, nonprofits that will be uplifting, but will still kind of break your heart at the end of the day. But throwing birthday parties, that sounds pretty dope. That sounds like a great day every day. (laughs) That's exactly like, how could you, how could that be bad? Like it, it, just like and, pure unbridled joy of children and their parents, like finally giving them the experience that every parent wants to give every kid. 
I remember, I don't know about you, but I remember my birthday parties as a child, like very, very clearly. Still, like crystal clear memories sometimes of like my fifth birthday party that was a dress up party. Um, and everybody came over to my house and Alex Tuna, my classmate, um, is a little tiny boy and he wore a pumpkin costume and it was <laughs> the most adorable thing I've ever seen. It's still the funniest thing I've ever seen. That is that is so cute. I love so it. So cute. Uh, but I, since it is my birthday tomorrow, I do want to share one um, Matthew Goodman uh, birthday tradition, yes. um, which is um, I go to a donut store and buy one of every donut. <laughs> and yes. then at my party... Uh, everyone is allowed to select the donut that they want, but if more than one person wants the donut, they have to arm wrestle for it. (laughs) (laughs) And if there's a significant weight disparity, the uh, the smaller person is allowed to use both hands. Oh, God. And this is how I got to see one of my friends who's like 6'2 and like 220 and his wife's like, you know, five foot one and like a hundred pounds. They wanted the same donut. And I got to see him basically hurl her bodily across the room, <laughs> grab the donut in triumph and yell, yes, for shoving it in his mouth. <laughs> um, I feel like you just yeah. saw a, gl- a glimpse into that couple's sex life. If, you know, if there ever was one. Hey, if it makes them happy, it makes them happy, you know. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, this is the only day of the year I'm allowed to eat donuts because I love them. <laughs> so much um but they, they they're only allowed to exist on my birthday so it truly <laughs> is the most delicious the most delicious thing there was a comedian that was talking about crispy cream donuts that you don't actually eat a crispy cream you just sort of inhale it and it slides down your gullet like it just disappears but the calorie the the sugar hits your bloodstream but like <laughs> that's all that happens because there's yeah. nothing else in a donut except for bread and sugar and air. Yeah. <laughs> and like, that's the problem with really good donuts is that, and why I have to limit myself is that you can promise yourself you're going to control, you're going to exercise <laughs> self-control, but they go down so easy and you get such a high that like I once ate a 12 pack of Krispy Kremes as a kid and like didn't notice <laughs> until like I felt horribly ill 20 minutes later. <laughs> oh yeah. That like, that like real intense blood sugar spike nausea. Yeah. Yeah, you know exactly what I mean. And I was just like, oh, I need to lie down. But at the same time, lying down is uncomfortable because you feel like you also need to like hurl yourself up a mountain simultaneously. Um, so yeah, uh, I am I am probably going to wake up super early or just stay up extra late to get the first donuts uh, that are going to be available at a local donut, uh, at a local donut store. Um, awesome. And then, then enjoy that as the sun comes up. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. Yeah. Oh man, I love this tradition. I I'm, I'm I want you to like, you know, do a little ebook on uh, Matthew Goodman's uh, birthday tradition, just so we can all like learn better, you know, birthday excellence. Also, ice cream cake. Shit yes, shit <laughs> yes. Ice cream cake remains one of the greatest things ever invented. And yes, I know that makes me like an eight-year-old child from the no. 1980s and 90s. <laughs> ice cream cake is the jam um i am I, that's actually a really good idea a couple a couple of years in a row i made my own ice cream cake like i made homemade ice cream and then you know Ooh. like really did it up but like i i am a firm believer that the appropriate number of ice cream flavors is at least two every time mm-hmm. you have ice cream so i I'm, i love this this is all and, like tracking and the great thing with ice cream cake is also you can put all sorts of crunchy stuff in there that's yes yes 
so it's like I know where this is off topic, but you know, I think that this is this is important, you know, yeah. for me to discuss because <laughs> I, I really do feel a lot of people don't like their birthdays, a lot of people worry about getting older or they think they I need know. a huge party. Like what I love about my birthday is I realized what I wanted when I was like ten. <laughs> and <laughs> And again, like I am both was too too serious as a child and like too silly as an adult. But like, it is there is something just so satisfying about knowing I will get exactly what I want because there is no question about what I want on my birthday. And what I want is to have the donuts and the arm wrestling, and then people to sing <laughs> sing me happy birthday, and then we all get to cut into the ice cream cake, and then see what flavors it is, what fun things are inside of it. Uh, and then, uh, and then hopefully, you know, get some presents, but honestly, I don't need presents. I just need the donuts and the ice cream cake. That is so beautiful. That is so pure, Matt. I love it with my whole heart. (laughs) Do you have any, any, uh, birthday traditions? I don't do traditions, but I do always just like go have a nice meal. That's all I care about. I used to throw myself big parties and I didn't realize until later that I hated it so much. Hmm. And then uh, I quit doing that because it was a huge pain in my ass. And, and like it, you know, the more you put pressure on yourself to throw the perfect party, like guaranteed, you're going to be let down. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and then one year the, the like real rager that I planned, um, there was Everclear involved and like a bunch <laughs> of bad stuff happened. And I was like, Ooh, I think we're going to like take a break from parties for a while. Um, although one year for my birthday, I had, a bunch of my friends over and um, a bunch of my friends who are beautiful bisexual and lesbian ladies uh, just got mostly naked in the hot tub at the house that we were living in. And um, that was all fun and good. And then like the men were drawn to it, you know, moths to flame. And eventually I never moved because it was my birthday and I was too drunk to move. And eventually all the beautiful women that were around me were replaced entirely by men. And I was like, Oh, I don't like this as much as I liked it before. (laughs) Which is why one of my friends had a no boys allowed birthday party. And then I get it. Yeah. And then, then one with all of her friends, but she said that the no boys allowed (laughs) party was better. Um, (laughs) I want to give a recommendation to anyone else who has uh, a birthday coming up soon. Uh, Sarah Taylor for her birth, one of her birthdays when I was in law school. Uh, we love the show Nailed It. Uh, it's oh, on Netflix. Yes. It's on Nicole Byer. Yeah, it's hosted by Nicole Byer, who's one of my favorite people in the universe. And it's a show if you've never seen it, in which home bakers uh, are shown like the sort of like paragon of baking perfection, some complicated, beautiful piece of <laughs> uh, of art which then they need to try to recreate with not enough time and no expertise. And, and one of the judges is Jacques Therese, who is a a, like internationally lauded uh, pastry and chocolate expert. And also just like one of the most joyful French people that you'll ever meet. Um, And just full, like the joyful French Papa you always wanted. And like he, the amount of happiness he gets and like sheer giddiness he gets from having fun and he and nicole love each other it is one of like the hidden gems on netflix watch it support nicole i want as many seasons as humanly possible and listen to nicole's podcast uh why won't you date me oh also excellent which is insane to me because she is so beautiful and funny and anyway um 
So we threw a nailed it party in which, uh, mm-hmm. but it was with cupcakes and you do cupcakes. Number one, um, because you don't want to spend all the time trying to have people decorate cakes. Right, right. Number two, it's because it's really easy to bake a large amount of cupcakes and still right. have them be relatively delicious. So my recommendation is bake a whole bunch of vanilla cupcakes like or yellow cupcakes and then some chocolate cupcakes. So you have a mix. And then for each person, uh, look up fancy cupcakes online, like a picture of it, print out those pictures. And then each person who comes in, they get handed a picture of a cupcake they need to try to reproduce. <laughs> and then they're also allowed to do one dealer's choice, just like their particular, whatever strikes their fancy. So uh, it was fantastic. The only problem we ran into is that apparently my friends were too good. Because <laughs> there were essentially no disasters. But I was there... going to say you're, I was that you took the words out of my mouth that your friend group strikes me as people who would <laughs> actually pretty much nail it. Yeah, and, and, and people, you can, you know, just provide frosting, but and but tell people that they need to bring their own tools if they want to. Otherwise, they're, like, doing it with, like, popsicle sticks. Um, but provide lots of different types of frosting and stuff. But, like, even my friends who weren't bakers, because I already knew some of my friends were bakers, uh, so I gave them really crazy complicated stuff. But, like, my friend Kenny, who's, like, not a baker at all, I gave him, like, a, a burger one, like a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> Make that, and he won because his burger was perfect. It it was perfect. He even found sesame <laughs> seeds in our pantry to put on the bun. Um, and one of my friends, who's a jag, Elliot, um, <sighs> his wife Alice is uh, is Italian and a wonderful baker. She was making these beautiful floral patterns. His dealer's <laughs> choice was to make the poop emoji. <laughs> <laughs> And it was glorious. Someone made a cookie monster uh, cupcake. Oh, amazing. So that's why I say, you know, do one so that the off the picture and then one dealer's choice because it's silly. No one cares. You get to eat them afterwards. So it's going to be fun. Um, and it's really easy set up to do. It's not expensive. Uh, and it was one of the most successful birthday parties um, I've ever seen. Uh, I am ter- I'm good at baking but I'm terrible at decorating. So I got to, you know, bow out from humiliating myself (laughs) and said I was the photographer and the baker for the day. Awesome. Um, But that's my recommendation. Anyone with a birthday coming up, do a Nailed It party. Um, If you haven't seen Nailed It, watch all the seasons that are on Netflix. uh, And it will will make your life better. Um, I will do my own. I did have a quote-unquote tradition for a couple of years that I really enjoyed. Um, are you familiar with the artist Holton Rauer? No. Uh, so Holton Rauer, way back in the day, like way before, <laughs> way before shitty acrylic uh, art, quote unquote, on TikTok was a thing. Holton Rauer was doing these pour over, um, like pieces that would solidify, and so they just look like these amazing, like kind of ribbon, like mega eyes, and he would pour them over like square objects, and um, and you know, it's it's this really communal communal. Um, thing because he has all these shop assistants and they mix up the paint and the pouring medium and then they all kind of step in and carefully pour it in the middle and I love watching them make these things so I was like I'm fucking doing this for a cake at my birthday so I mixed up I just did box cake in a square mold one year I did a square mold one year I did a uh, round mold and then the top cake was in a, a bunt pan that was like fluted so that the uh frosting would like flow down it in interesting ways 
And then everybody gets to, you can do it a few ways, right? You can either have big vats of like yellow, blue, um, and red, like pourable frosting, and everyone can mix their own color, or you can just do white and then like leave your gel color out. Um, but then everybody got to mix their own color and pour it on the cake. And then the cake was like uh, this beautiful sort of psychedelic uh, combination of everybody doing this like group art project, which I loved so much. And we had so much fun with that. That sounds amazing. I love it. And I just looked up Holton Rauer's work and I'm like, that would make a bomb ass cake. Yeah. If you want to look it up, <clears throat> listener, it is H-O-L-T-O-N-R-O-W-E-R. And uh, it's dope. You should watch his videos because it's fun. So, uh, speaking of things that are dope, uh, metal honey. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, actually metal honey, um, just today, the thing that I was making today, if I can use this time to make an announcement, Please. um, I have two new products that are officially going to be available, not online, but you can come and get them at the farmer's market just because to sell them online. I have to do a bunch of shit and, um, just come see me this weekend in Indianapolis and then, and then you'll find it online, um, in the next couple weeks. But uh, the first item is an old favorite that's just getting a new name and new packaging. The uh, sweet pickled, sweet and spicy pickled onions and jalapenos are coming back as Rodeo Oof. Relish. And uh, uh, there's a brand new product that's called Burger Jam. And uh, Burger Jam is a sour, sweet um, jam made of onions and tomatoes <clears throat> um, with some, uh, some of the Trinidad Scorpion uh, mash blended in there. Oh. So... It's delicious. It's just a jar of sweet and sour caramelized onions with tomatoes. It's just the world's fanciest like ketchup slash onion marmalade you've ever had. It's delicious. Oh my god, that sounds so good. I have to say, <laughs> uh, that's also the, the first I want to just like put it on like a brat on a yes. side, like, hot off the grill. Oh yes, yes. And uh, the most awesome thing is the person that um, is working with me um, is uh, her name is Grace, but she's a chef, and so. The most awesome part was I got to work on it while she was there. And I was like, hey, does this need more salt? But like, does this really, does it actually need more salt? That was the best. That's awesome. I know. Yeah. So now like that sounds perfect summer yeah. food, like absolutely perfect summer food. And I have to say, I am not a big ketchup fan, um, but on burgers, you know, I always, I want the tomato flavor, but I don't yes. want the ketchup. So burger jam sounds like my kind of jam. And it is whole Roma, beautiful Roma tomatoes in there. So you're going to get like the, the skins and the seeds and it's kind of, it's blended with a stick blender partially. So you get like, it just has some really nice, mm. um, uh, like mouthfeel to it. It's just delicious. I think everyone's going to like it a lot. Oh, that sounds so good. Now I'm just like, you know, I'm looking outside. <laughs> like there's a, <laughs> like, well, send me, send me your address. <laughs> send me your address and I'll ship you a, bo a bottle of it. Oh my God. Jar. You are. Okay, if I if you weren't one of my favorite people already, you definitely are now. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, of of course, to all of our listeners. I hope that we had a little more fun today. I know that things have been a little bleak, and I have ben. to give you a heads up. We're about to get a whole bunch of huge Supreme Court decisions in June. So yeah, uh, it's probably not going to get a lot better in the short term. So like, we're going to have some fun while we can. Yeah, exactly. So uh, please like, subscribe, share. You can find us on Twitter at Perp Stew. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and uh, feel free to you know, send us a message if, there, uh, if you have anything, any topics you want us to cover in the future um, and leave a review if you get a chance. It helps us with, our, with the algorithm and to get the word out there. But that's going to do it for this week. This has been the Perpetual Stew. Uh, I'm Matthew Goodman. 
I'm Sarah Merle. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I got a text at this exact moment from the kid who bought my car who's like, do you know the radio code? And I'm like, oh, shit. I sure don't. Uh, I'm, I'm going to keep this in. <laughs> yeah, keep it all in. Keep it I'll all keep in. It all in. Okay. Until next time, <laughs> stay curious. Bye. <laughs>